Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello again, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule, as always, is the podcast where people tell me five things from their life that they've chosen to put in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish, and one thing that they'd like to put in there so they can forget it. My guest in this episode, I'm delighted to say, is the broadcaster Jackie Oakley. Jackie was the first female commentator on the flagship BBC One football highlights programme Match of the Day on the 21st of April 2007 for the Premier League match between Fulham and Blackburn Rovers. Jackie works as a football commentator for Sky Sports and other broadcasters, calling games on the FIFA World Cup, Premier League, FA Women's Super League, UEFA Champions League and UEFA International matches. She was also a sports presenter on Quest TV covering the English Football League, a podcast host for The Athletic and is current anchor for ITV Sports Live Darts coverage. Jackie provided commentary on the UEFA Women's Euro 2009 final between Germany and England. She provided live commentary on BBC Radio 5 Live for matches of the 2010 FIFA World Cup in South Africa. And she was one of the BBC television reporters with the Great Britain women's Olympic football team for the 2012 Summer Olympics. She's been the lead play-by-play commentator for FA Women's Super League in the UK since September 2021. And in 2022, Fox Sports High as a main play-by-play commentator for the United States broadcast of the FIFA World Cup, becoming the first woman to serve in that role 
for the tournament's US broadcast. Impressive, eh? She was appointed a member of the Order of the British Empire, or MBE, in the 2016 New Year's Honours for services to broadcasting and diversity in sport. The award was recognition of her work behind the scenes championing the role of women working in football. Actually, I could go on, but I think you'd be better off hearing about Jackie's life from Jackie herself, because she's a professional. So here is the delightful Jackie Oatley. Well, it's a thrill, I have to say, to have you on here, because there are very few people who in their life can claim to have been the first or to have changed something dramatically, especially for women. And you have that claim. Oh, um... Well, thank you. That's nice of you to start with that. Um, in, no. Inadvertently so, I guess, because when I came into this industry, I was just wanting to do it for the same reasons that anybody else does, literally the same reasons. And it, it was only after that that it became pretty clear to me that I was in something of the minority, and <laughs> <laughs> which I guess I knew, but I... I just thought of myself as being me and was coming into it for the same reasons as everybody else and then realised actually there were a few barriers there, glass ceilings, et cetera, which I hadn't yeah. hadn't quite thought ahead about. Um, I just experienced them as I went along and dealt with them as I went along. And, and now I make it not quite my life's work, but I do try very, very hard to try to make it easier for other women coming along. Well, it's extraordinary once you've done a thing like that, then suddenly, I mean, I know the glass ceiling is there still uh, for many people in all sorts of areas of sport. But actually, just those breaking down of the few barriers, they make such a difference. They affect every other area. I noticed just the other day, uh, somebody on Twitter put a picture up of a, a female referee who'd refereed a male football match and had been applauded off the pitch by both sets of fans. And you think that's a change in attitude, isn't it? That's a way of looking at things that is really important, I think. Oh, that's huge. I mean, I saw that this morning and, and quote tweeted it straight away because with all the furore that at the time of recording, there's been about the, the Liverpool goal that didn't stand, et cetera, and the lambasting of the officials and, okay, they yeah. made a huge mistake, but the fallout from that. And then just seeing a journalist from Southend saying that at Southend United last night, a that's right. referee had been applauded off the pitch, didn't particularly make a big deal of the fact she was female, but it was remarkable that a referee had been applauded off the pitch. And then all the yeah. fans underneath that tweet piled on, if you like, but in a good way saying, yes, she was excellent. We're not used to that down here. And I was just like, what is going on? So I think that kind of thing is really, really important to highlight, not just from a women's point of view, but from the poor referee's point of view, because that's another minority that I tried to stick up for as well. And um, I know they're not a very popular bunch. But human error, I mean, it's part of all these things, isn't it? And it, you can either say, well, we're going down to the tennis route where we have this machine that sells you if it's in or out. That's it. And the, uh, those things can be decided by machines. But other things, I think, are very, very difficult. And it's understandable, I think, when mistakes are made, even by people who are working with technology. So, for example, before that technology was used, I mean, seconds before that technology was used, the linesman called offside. So if they hadn't had the technology, that would have been it. Exactly. Wow, we could go down a real rabbit hole, couldn't we, when it comes to <laughs> <laughs> refereeing in football? My goodness. But, oh, oh my dear, word. oh dear. But, yeah. but, um, but it's not just football and it's all sorts of areas you deal with now. It's, it's fantastic, I think. Yeah, I work in darts as well, which is something I came to in 2015 uh, when mm. I was asked to 
present darts for ITV completely out of the blue. I was working, <laughs> I was working at the BBC at the time and presenting uh, football and women's football and et cetera. And I didn't have an agent at the time. And I literally mm. had a, a call from my old boss who used to be at the BBC and uh, asked me for a meeting and he was ill on the day. And he said, but I just want to tell you what I want to offer you. And and it literally came up in a phone conversation out of the blue, I'd like you to present the next World Cup, men's World Cup and men's Euros and also wow. the darts. But that was brilliant. I mean, I'd, I'd worked covering other sports for Five Live for many years, predominantly mm-hmm. football, of course, but Five Live does lots of other sports as well. You know, tennis, yeah, yeah. rugby league, I'd done, but darts was new, but I just threw myself into it and I'd seen it on TV, et cetera. I hadn't actually focused so much on the nuts and bolts of it and hadn't been before, but yeah, absolutely love it. And eight years later, <laughs> I'm still doing it and still look forward to seeing all the ITV gang when I go, because we have such a laugh and just, <laughs> we just get so into it. And if you haven't, have you been to darts, Mike? I've never been to darts, but I watch it. I mean, I love it. Oh, it is such a day out and night. Out. I always tell people to go to mm. the Masters in Milton Keynes because it, it's got a hotel attached to the arena there where yeah. Milton Keynes Dons play football. So if you're staying over, you can stay in the hotel and you know, go to the arena, but also you could just drive for a session and drive home again. It's <laughs> such a good venue and it's just such a great tournament. And it's it's going global around the world. It really is, thanks to Barry Hearn and Matchroom. But I absolutely yeah. love it. It's so much fun. Strangest hotel in the world. I think the one round Milton Keynes Dons football ground. Oh, exactly. Yeah, in, as much, yes. in as much as if you get a room on the far side, that's the only way there is to go up one side and you walk right round the pitch, don't you? It's yeah, very strange. Exactly. And then you get to your room and then the key doesn't work. You're like, oh, <laughs> suitcases. You've got to go all the way back round the football field to go back. And then it's weird because yeah. when we cover the Masters, which is usually end of January, beginning of February, at the arena next door, and we'll be you know, having one of our dart sessions. And then if Milton Keynes Dons are playing at home, and quite often it's around FA Cup time as well, they have yeah. all these barriers up and these these black drapes so he can't see through to the football, which is uh, quite upsetting because I, yeah. I, it's my dream to be able to see both at the same time, one on one eye, <laughs> one eye on the darts, you know. <laughs> well, okay. So um, I will see what comes up as we talk about the five things you've chosen to put into a time capsule. We'll see where that leads us and what we discover about about your life. So um, what's the first thing you've chosen, Jackie? And I've had quite a random life, Mike. Has to be said. <laughs> and it's still very random now, my goodness. It, it is random, but that's, a, well, that's something to be cherished, I think, don't you? I guess so, because, it, yeah, it started off quite normally and straightforward, and now it's just gone all over the place, all over the world. But my first item, so I'm going to do it chronologically, if you don't mind, kind of nope. life-wise. Um, I've gone for a Bross poster, because that's... <laughs> The last time that I remember being on this planet without being completely and utterly obsessed with football. That's my uh-huh. last memory of it. So being, um, I don't like to say normal little girl because now it is normal for girls to like football. But back then in the 80s, it was not normal for girls to like football. And and I went to an all-girls school, etc. So just before that, I had my walls in my bedroom in my village of Codsell, South Staffordshire, just 10 minutes from Wolverhampton, plastered with Bross posters. And I was seen as being quite normal back then. And I just remember, (laughs) you know, when will I be famous and all that. They were beautiful men. They were, well, boys, in fact, really, weren't they? Yeah, they were. 
They were beautiful. They yeah. were really. They had marvelous skin. I remember that. That <laughs> Luke Goss. And, then, and yeah. so I had underneath my dressing table there was a glass surface, and underneath I had Bross posters underneath, and other music posters as well. It wasn't just Bross, but that's my last memory before all hell broke loose, and I just <laughs> turned. One day, I just turned into a football fanatic, and I've never looked back. But but yeah, Bross is is my memory. Were you taken to a game or did you suddenly watch it on the telly for the first time? The latter. What had happened was, so I, I grew up loving sport. It was an innate thing. It didn't really come particularly from family. My dad did love sport. He was into golf. Mm-hmm. But we weren't really a sport family. My brother's never been into sport, never enjoyed playing it, still never watches it. Um, <laughs> doesn't have a clue, just not interested. My mum played hockey at school, but, you know, that was the extent of it. Mum's from South yeah. Africa. My dad's from all over. And so I had no introduction to football whatsoever. And then one day I was lying on the sofa, the days before remote controls, Mike, for goodness sake. (laughs) Anyone younger listening to this is like, what on earth is she talking about? It's alien world. (laughs) We had about three TV channels as well. BBC One, BBC Two and ITV. I was trying to tell my nine-year-old son on the way to school and he was like... But also hardly any live football. No, no. No. Exactly. I remember there being a, a... live game on a Sunday and those FA Cup highlights, etc. Yeah, and I just remember a game, couldn't even tell you what game it was, but I remember the furnishings, the flowery furnishings we had in my lounge way back mm-hmm. then. And the TV was miles away. It, it was a decent sized lounge. And I just remember lying there, not feeling great and not feeling inclined to get up and turn over. And it was a football match. And literally that was it. There was something that just clicked in my mind. It was like a switch had been flicked and all those years of playing hockey on the hockey field at school and dreading the three pips of Mrs. Slater's whistle for the end of our one hour of PE for the whole week. There was nothing else. There were no sports clubs. There was nothing in those days, no holiday camps, no sport at all. And I loved it so much. So I think I was already football ready but I'd just mm. never been introduced to it and never seen it. And after that day, I just became obsessed. And I do mean obsessed. And it does sound really odd. And my school friends now laugh at it because they're used to me being like this now for 35 years or whatever it is. But yeah. they, at the time, they were like, what is Jackie doing? She's surely <laughs> doing this just to get in with boys, which I would have thought too, because I went to an all girls school and I didn't barely see a boy. But no, it certainly was not that. It was just the actual sport itself. It was the sport for me. And while lots of other girls of of my generation, the next one, tend to be introduced to it by brothers, kick about in the garden or dads often. Mm -hmm. And it was more dads in those days than mums. But no, it was it. And then from that day onwards, instead of running to the front door to get the Express and Star newspaper just before my dad and the dog Badger... I um, ran to the front door to get the newspaper before my dad and the dog Badger to turn to the back page instead of page three where the TV listings were and Juliet Bravo and Coronation Street and whatever it was. <laughs> and and I went to the back page and I was like, okay, I have a local football team. I'll start supporting them. And that was the right. start of this crazy, crazy journey of mine. Yeah. Who was that team? It was Wolverhampton Wanderers. Right. And I don't normally like to talk particularly about them because I am a football commentator and we don't tend to talk about our teams but I have talked about it previously and the toothpaste has been squeezed out of the tube and it's very hard to get it back in but what I will say is yes as an obsessive all those years now that I'm 
a commentator and I did commentate them on them last weekend. It is a very, very different job, very, very <laughs> different mindset. And, and when you're professionally holding a microphone with headset on, it is the easiest thing in the world to commentate on them, as lots of other commentators nationally do every single week. And nobody would ever know. No, no. But I mean, but that obsession has to stay, doesn't it? That has to stick with you. You can't just do that. It's just a job. I just turn up and I talk about the game and I talk about the players. There's an enormous amount of preparation goes into these things, isn't there? Oh, yes. Huge amount. And I'm a proper nerd, a real geek. So my <laughs> notes now, I mean, it evolves every single week. I tweak something every single week about my notes, but I'm a computer notes maker because mm -hmm. a lot of people you'll see writing hand notes and they say, well, that's best for them because they can remember it. Well, great, good luck to them. But I could never read my handwriting, and I'd want to, <laughs> I'd want to unscribble everything. But I just make the font smaller and add more stuff in because I like to know not just their age or their height if it's either particularly tall or particularly short, but I want to know something recent about them. I want to know what they've done recently, what the coaches said about them recently, when was their last goal. Mm -hmm. anything fascinating about them if they've got three kidneys um in the case of a, <laughs> yeah. a reading women's player i discovered by, by right. asking for anything quirky all sorts of things i like to have to hand and then i memorize it where possible because when yeah. you're commentating on a football match you don't always have time to look down because you no. could miss a headbutt you could miss a two-footed tackle you could miss a, a goalkeeper scoring the full length of the pitch with a, mm -hmm. a clearance or a goal kick and so i tried to memorize as much as possible but I do find it takes up an enormous amount of time and I have to try to minimise that because <laughs> if I have a commentary at a weekend, I find myself prepping all week, which is really bad because as a freelancer, you only get paid for one day. But yeah. it's a way of life. Yeah. I, I go to my autistic 11-year-old grandson for interesting football facts. He constantly fires at me questions of, you know, who scored the most goals in, and, and then I don't know, I just guess <laughs> at things. I generally guess, is it Ronaldo? He goes, it is Ronaldo. <laughs> I go, oh, I thought it might be. <laughs> That's a good guess, in fairness. <laughs> it's a good guess, isn't it? Him or Messi. It's going to work on most levels. Yeah. So um, I like the idea that you want to go back and look at this time before that obsession caught you and took you and, and has led you through everything. But, I mean, it wasn't something that seemed to you at the time something that you could turn into a career, was it? Oh, no, 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 not at all. And then I changed schools. I went to a virtually all-boys school for sixth form, which was great because then I had people to go to football matches with. And I started going <laughs> home and away. And my first game was September 1990. Wolves won, Bristol Rovers won. That was a long time ago. And then I started travelling away. So I would drive to away games once I'd turned 17. But before that, I'd get the coach, the supporters coach all over mm. the country. And my dad thought I was mad. He really did. Was like, <laughs> And I was asking for pocket money and spending it on traveling away. But it was something that really gripped me. And even if the lads weren't allowed to go one day or couldn't go, I'd still just go on the supporters coach to Grimsby or to Roker Park or to wherever. I would just go anyway and stand on the mm. terraces. And it was a, it was such a sociable thing. It was such a tribal thing. It was a, a pure state of passion that I was in. And how I ever got a GCSE or an A-level, <laughs> honestly, because there were major football tournaments on while I was doing both and I couldn't concentrate on any exams and I didn't want to concentrate on any exams. I just wanted to watch football matches. And so to answer your question, I remember being in sixth form and having my um, careers chat. Yeah. And the first thing he said to me was, so, Jackie, you do know you can't be a football manager, don't you? 
And I was just crushed inside. And I was so embarrassed that he'd recognized something that possibly I wanted to do. And he just trampled on my dreams with that one sentence. And I went, well, of course not. And whilst I hadn't really thought about being a football manager, I hadn't realized that I could work in football. And certainly after that sentence, that was it. So no, I never thought about working in sport because I didn't see anyone particularly apart from the odd female TV presenter. And I didn't want to present TV at the time. I had no interest in telly. Radio was my thing. I used to listen to BBC WM and the goal horn. And it was like Pavlov's dog when you'd hear, (laughs) it's a goal. And I'd have this huge rush of adrenaline thinking, is it Wolves at Oakwell in Barnsley? And no, it wasn't. It was Warsaw at the Bescott Stadium. Um, (laughs) And, and, you know, that adrenaline would have to go somewhere. And I'd have... um, CFAX on because of course there was no internet and I'd wait for the scores to go around and yeah so then it comes on to my second item actually it comes on to my Fiat Uno which I was very very fortunate to have a very old third fourth hand Fiat Uno to go to university when I was 17 and went to Leeds University great university loved it got there to my house of 14 girls um, that, that I'd been put in by the university, said hi to them all, dumped my bags, drove all the way back to Wolverhampton for a nil-nil draw with West Ham, which was on the TV <laughs> anyway, and then to drive back to Leeds. And everyone else had already kind of made friends with each other and bonded. And I was like, yeah. oh, you idiot. Why didn't I just stay? So I had to kind of do some catching up on that front. Mm. And set up the Leeds University Wolverhampton Wanderers Supporters Society and drove all around Leeds with my <laughs> Wolves on Tour sticker, which I twice got the windows smashed in for people who didn't like them very much and might oh, no. learn my lesson and just kept putting it back. And yeah. yeah, and started driving all around the country to Wolves matches every weekend, as well as playing. That's when I first started playing. But to answer your question, which was quite a long time ago now, about career. <laughs> no, I didn't think about that really until I was 27. So 10 yeah. years later. Yeah. yeah, because it just wasn't seen as an option. But how interesting, because now you could say to a girl, you can be a football manager. You might even manage England one day. Why not? The prospect is there all of a sudden. When you see such good managers managing well, the England women's football team and uh, all around the country. Really great managers with a different style, a different way of doing things, but one that is being adopted by a lot of the male managers of these clubs. And you think to yourself, well, actually, maybe at some point somebody will say, OK, let's get a premiership club and actually hire a female manager. Yeah, I mean, people have said that for years, but I think it's had to be an organic process. I mean, I remember years ago, I was covering women's football for the BBC from 2004 onwards, and people had say randomly, oh, we should get Hope Powell for the England men's job. Well, why? I don't really, yeah. like, why? That doesn't make any sense. It wouldn't suit her. She'd hate it with a passion. It didn't suit her personality. Just No, I, I think people need to look at the situation and, and look at what clubs need and look at the job the female's doing rather than talk about getting a female manager for the sake of it. And I think we have yeah. evolved so much now since then. Oh my goodness. We didn't even have a professional league though. We haven't had a professional league for a very long time. And it's only really in the last couple of years that the respect levels and the professionalism levels have been there. And the two go hand in hand. A lot of yeah. people don't realize that women's football was banned in England for 50 years by the <laughs> FA until 1971. And then they yeah. say, well, women's football's not as good as men's football. 
Well, if men had been banned from playing football for 50 years, we would not have the Premier League now. We would not have men's football being sold around the world as it is now for billions and billions of pounds. Mm. So, I mean, let's get real about it. We've had to start from reverse. And now we have women who can work full-time as coaches. That hasn't been happening for very long. Goalkeepers haven't had goalkeeping coaching for very long. They're the ones that used to get criticised all the time. Well, Mm. funny that. They were holding down a job all week and they go to training a couple of nights a week. No specialist goalkeeper training. And then you're criticising them for letting in a soft goal in a cup final when there's one game on TV a year. I mean... It was it was really crazy. But in terms of management, I mean, you look at the job Serena Wiegmann has done and she's now being linked to men's jobs purely on merit and not yes. due to any kind of, oh, let's give a woman a go or, you know. No, absolutely. That wouldn't be the reason for doing it. The reason for doing it would be saying this person is as good as anybody else. This is the person who I think would be best for the job. And that's the point that I think we are aiming towards, I'm sure. Yeah, I think so. And I think people like me have been banging on for years about when people talk about women's football. It's it's quite tiresome. You just want it to be football. And I think the last couple of tournaments, and I was fortunate enough to commentate on this past Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. It was astonishing. And I wasn't there thinking about being at a women's football tournament. It was a football tournament. I was also commentating on the Men's World Cup in Qatar, also for Fox Sports in the USA. It was so similar. Genuinely just all the branding was similar. The stadia was similar. The press boxes were similar. Everything was similar. The crowd was similar. The crowd was similar. Yeah. 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 My job was the same. I'd do pitch side. I'd do commentary. I mean, it was all the same. Mm. And it was an absolute dream. But in terms of female coaches getting opportunities and players getting opportunities, those women were as good as they were despite the odds. And I bet you anything now, Mike, and people probably haven't thought about this, but the vast, vast, vast majority of those players playing in that Women's World Cup will have had brothers and will only have been introduced to football because they kicked a ball with a brother while they were at a coaching session. Because when Mm -hmm. I've done my prep at many, many tournaments over these years and players have asked how they got into it, they said, oh, it's my brother was playing in the garden or I was bored waiting for my brother at training. So yeah. that's not because these women have been given equal opportunities to play no, from it. No, absolutely. All right, well, we've got your Bross poster in there. <laughs> we've also got uh, your little Fiat Uno. How old did you say it was? Oh, it was really old when I got it way back when, but I, yeah, I went to university far too early. I went when I was 17 because I'd kind of skipped a year somewhere and uh, it was quite an eye-opener. But um, yeah, it was our supported team bus all around the country, but it was it was an old <laughs> little thing. It was more like a baked bean tin and instead of having a key yeah. to open it, you needed a tin opener. It was literally <laughs> a little can really, but I adored it. It was I was just so grateful to have it that I just gave people lifts everywhere at university just because I was just so appreciative of, of having such a thing. And this is where you studied German? I did, yes. Yeah. I did sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so is that still something that you feel capable with, or or do you sort of go, oh, that's a long time ago now? Yeah, manchmal kann ich ein bisschen Deutsch. I still love German, and I loved it at school. And I was I was very naughty when it came to deciding what degree to do, because I rang up my best friend Rachel and I said, "What are you doing?" She went, "I'm doing physics at Leeds," and physics was her best subject. And I was like, "Okay, mm. I'll do German at Leeds." 
because German was my best subject. That's it. That's the sum total of the research. And I feel quite guilty now because we all had our fees paid for. We had grants and all sorts of stuff. Not like now where it's a massive commitment financially. And I did fine at the grammar, but I didn't realise I'd have to study medieval German literature, which was German (laughs) before it became German. It might as well have been Russian. And these books were horrific. And I didn't enjoy Uh. that side at all. But And I think languages actually get a bad press because today when kids learn languages at school, they're like, why do I even need it? I've got Google Translate on my phone, on my computer. Mm. When I go abroad, everyone speaks English anyway. But I really would like to challenge that. And anyone who's got kids who think that, please send them my way on social media. Because (laughs) honestly, as well as doing French at school and still being able to speak a bit of that, I've found languages and especially the two different types of languages, French and German, so, so useful. Yes, in my job, and not everyone's going to be a football commentator, but also in life, just being able to understand other languages like Dutch or Danish or Mm. those kind of Germanic languages and sometimes a bit of Spanish and Italian as a result of the French words are kind of similar. And I think this is what I'm trying to teach my kids now about being respectful to other cultures and appreciating the world doesn't revolve around England or English speaking countries and how important it is that when we go on holiday and we just came back from Crete this summer, that before we went, we all practiced how to speak the very basic, hello, good morning, how are you? Thank you very much Mm -hmm. in Greek. And, you know, whenever we've been anywhere, we've always tried to do that. And yeah, I just think that's quite important. But I do think languages are are a bit underrated. So I like to stick up for them a little bit, especially German. You're quite right to. You're quite right to. I'm absolutely useless at languages. And uh, I've never understood why, because I'm quite good at language. It's what I do for a living in a way. But other languages just puzzle me beyond belief. And I've studied French for what I suppose nine years at school. Terrible, terrible at it. And as far as Greek is concerned, I did go and learn I thought Greek, and walked around a Greek island saying good morning to everybody, and they were fantastically friendly to me and would laugh and wave. And, and in fact, people came out of their houses to see me come down the street in the morning. That's how friendly they were. Until my wife told me that um, it was Calamera, not Calamari. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but they do love it if you try, because they're, they're seeing that you're actually being respectful to their culture rather than absolutely. Just- yeah, saying yeah. hi, morning. Can I have some toast, please? You know, coffee, milk, please. That's... I do love the idea of you maybe standing pitch side one day, and uh, it hasn't happened for a while in the Premiership. But actually, suddenly we are getting German players playing, and you sort of prepping them in German. How exciting! <laughs> I did offer my services to Mark McGee once, the Wolves manager, when he signed Jens Duve and mm-hmm. um, or Dover. And uh, I said, if you, if you need any help, he said, "It's all right." I played in Germany. I was like, "Oh yeah, of course you did." <laughs> but yeah. um, no, it's not really been that useful in terms of players, but definitely in terms of you know commentating on World Cups and Champions League and Europa League and just getting those languages right. And I did a. Um, an exchange every summer, thanks to a, just a school program, which was a pen pal. Do you remember those pen pals? Yeah, I used to write yeah. to this girl called Babsy um, in Vienna. <laughs> Where she? In Vienna. Yes. Wow. And we're still in touch now. She's in Salzburg. And um, yeah, so she came over for three weeks to learn English. And then I went over there for three weeks to learn German. We spent our entire summer together from the age of 12 onwards, which is crazy Amazing, now. I mean, what, yeah, if we, yeah. what if we hadn't got on or 
Oh, I well, I think that did happen. But if you did get on, what a what a treat, what a thing to do. <laughs> that thing of at that age of going off on your own. It was so good for me. And I think it, yeah, I think it stood me in good stead because then later on when I did my German degree, I went to Germany to a city called Tübingen mm. and I was all on my own and had all sorts of difficult things to deal with. Um, there was a, a poor guy in my flat who had severe mental health issues and, and I just had mm. to navigate my way through that as well as, really learning the language conversationally and being there all that time. and But that was really, really um, character building for me to get mm. away from the comfort zone of my friends in England. And It's a strange thing for languages at university, isn't it? You suddenly do have that period where off you go. They suddenly, they spend six months or a year. How long were you abroad? Yeah, so a, a university year. Yeah, a and then year. I stayed on afterwards to work in a factory, which was a bit of a challenge because I'd have to get up at four in the morning and cycle down the town and pitch black and then clock in and work in a, a factory with only Polish people in it. And nobody spoke any English, French or German, so I couldn't communicate with anybody. <laughs> and and I was just sitting at a, at a machine, putting washers on this machine with my left hand, looking at the clock, waiting for them to go around to my right hand and just staring at the clock. And they'd come out and they'd be, they'd be softened around the edges. That was the purpose of the machine. Right. And I'd be there for eight hours doing that, oh. just staring at this clock. So I think that was maybe one of the things that inspired me later on in life. Don't get bored at work. <laughs> no, do something you're interested in. Absolutely. Well, all right. So that lovely Fiat Uno, let's put that in there as well. So that's two things we've got in, Jackie. What's number three? Okay, so the whistle is blown for half time, which means for everyone apart from ACAST Plus listeners, the BBC type members of our supporters, it's time for some ads. But almost certainly not about fast cars, betting, and beer. Strange combination. We'll be back in a moment. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the second half of my time capsule. No substitution so far, so here's me talking with the fabulous Jackie Oatley about the rest of the things she'd like to have in a time capsule. Jackie obviously is 3-0 up, so I don't think there'll be any extra time. See you at the end. 
So number three is Bloodlight magazine. I don't know if you remember this, but it used to be available in WH Smith and it had all sorts of courses that you could do, evening courses, daytime courses, weekend courses. So at the time, if we fast forward past university and I came out, traveled around the world for a year, came back not knowing what I wanted to do. And via a language agency, I fell into intellectual property, Mm. which was protecting brands initially on a CD-ROM trademark searches. So I'd go around to intellectual property companies, trademark attorneys in Chancery Lane, and I had a little office all on my own in High Hoban while my boss was in Chagford in Devon, but I didn't see anyone. (laughs) I didn't see anyone in my first job all day, every day, apart from these trademark attorneys. And I'd go and network the dongle, if you remember those that used to plug into the back of a computer. (laughs) And I had no technical background, but anyway, so I was doing this and and then injured my knee um, quite badly. And maybe mention that later, but then fast forward. I decided to change career after this serious knee injury and I couldn't play anymore. And Mm. it really hampered me getting around to even watch football, which was my fix at a weekend playing and watching. And I thought, well, I had to change jobs because I couldn't stay in that job. I couldn't get around to see clients. And I went to another intellectual property job, which just went so badly. Mm. They were really frustrated with me for having to have an operation. My boss was... Really not very nice. Let's just mm. put it that way. And Sweet I just remember of them. how kind of them. Oh, yeah. it just wasn't a nice experience. It was, it was really, really unpleasant. I was promoted, and then new boss came in and demoted me again alongside people who had been really unpleasant to me when I'd been promoted above them. And it was just a brilliant life lesson, brilliant life experience, but horrible at the time. Mm. And I remember sitting at my desk, and it had these three thick, heavy bars by the windows. And I just remember thinking well, I've lived abroad. I've traveled around the world. I don't have to be penned in to an office doing a job I really don't like with people who, my colleagues were lovely, by the way, I have to say, but in terms of bosses, just this really unpleasant boss. I was never going to get on with He didn't want me there. I didn't want to be there. It was just the wrong job. And so I went to Floodlight Magazine, uh, picked it up in WH Smith and thought, I need to do something to do with journalism because I'd realized that I wanted to do something to do with reporting on football matches on the radio. That's all Mm. I knew. I didn't know it was journalism, but I'd gone online and I looked up people who did the sort of job that I was interested in. I looked at their biographies and I thought, okay, well, they started in the hospital radio. So I looked up hospital radio and went down to Charing Cross Hospital in Hammersmith and Fulham. Mm. And I asked them if I could have a little slot on a uh, one evening to go around to get the requests from all the, the patients and would then go into the studio and then would play the request. But I'd also read my little sports report that I'd cobbled together at work that day. Brilliant. And then the Floodlight magazine thing came in because I looked up introduction to journalism courses and I found there was one night a week for three hours a week at Birkbeck College. And I thought, well, this is what I need. I need to start at the very, very bottom. Mm. So I did this and it was exactly what I wanted. It was how to ask questions. It was how to write basic journalism. It was the tools of journalism, literally pen, paper, printer, this kind of stuff. It was just how to write. And this was exactly what I was after. And I did evening course in um, radio production as well. So all these things for six months, I was like, right, this, this is definitely what I want to do. But how do I leap from being in a job I really don't like, which pays pretty well, I have to say, mm 
to going into the ether and finding a job possibly that loads of people would like to do and loads of people with proper qualifications. And again, a world completely dominated by men at that time, I should imagine. Yeah, I didn't really think about that. More on that later. I (laughs) (laughs) I didn't really think about that. I just thought I'd love to do it, but I just didn't know how. I just didn't know anybody that didn't have a neighbor or friend no. or a friend's dad or anything. See, and you could have rung up Lynn Truss, the great writer who wrote Eat Shoots and Leaves, who was the first female sports journalist for The Guardian yes. years ago. Yes. So there had been people, but in terms of football on the radio and how do I get that far, I just didn't know. So I did these evening courses for six months, including hospital radio as well. And I thought, yeah, it's definitely what I want to do. And then at the end of that, there was an, an RSL station, a restricted service license station, which popped up in Hammersmith called Riverside FM for three weeks that summer. And I thought, well, if I want to do three weeks presenting on there, which I was offered a a chance, you know, anyone who wanted to be on there could basically, even me. (laughs) And um, yeah, so I said, oh, yes, please, I'll I'll co-host a sports show. And they let me do that. But I thought to be able to do that, I wouldn't be able to work as well. So that's when I got the brainwave that if I just give up my job, Mm-hmm. then obviously I'd have no income, but I'd be able to work for three weeks. Um, yeah. And then if I give up my flat, then I would have that kind of freedom, but then I'd have no income. But this all made sense to me somehow. So I decided to phone around my friends and ask if they didn't mind if I could come and stay on their floors for a, a few days at a time. Nobody had spare rooms in that time. We were renting rooms in, in mm. flat shares, as I had been saving up for a deposit for a flat one day. And everyone was super kind and let me stay for a few days. And I traveled around with a duvet and a carrier bag and uh, pillows and literally stayed on landings, (laughs) on sofas, wherever, and did full-time work experience. So I did a couple of days at Haters News Agency in London, which was just amazing, just going to press Mm. conferences. And I was like, this is what I want to do. Bit of BBC WM for a week and just anywhere that would let me come in. And then I realized that... How, how do I just get a job without any proper qualifications? And I applied for things and didn't get anything. There were, you know, basic jobs paying absolutely nothing. And I couldn't even get them. Um, and rightly so, because other people were better qualified. And I thought, well, I don't actually want to do this by the back door. I actually want to learn my trade from scratch and mm. decided to go back to university and, and train from scratch. So instead of buying a flat, I put all my savings into going up to Sheffield and studying a one-year postgrad there. And it was the best thing I could have done because it meant I learned all the basics. And as soon as I got there, this was a broadcast journalism of news predominantly, but I could branch out mm. into sport. And I, I wrote letters to all the local BBC stations and said, hi there, I'm a mature student. I'm 27, nearly 28. And I'm in a hurry. I'd really like <laughs> to come and have some work experience and just see what it's all about. And luckily, BBC Leeds TV News offered me two days of work experience. And that was the break I needed because as soon as I walked through the door, I was looking around. I was thinking, this is where I want to be in a newsroom environment, ideally in sport, of course. But I was learning news mm. and I love news journalism too. And uh, asked people I was working with if I could see who the sports editor was. And I spotted him across the room and collared him and said, hi, you know, I'm a student, I'm doing a postgrad. Could I possibly come in and see you? 
to see if there's anything I could do to help out. And he said, well, we don't have anyone to do the non-league football. Would you be interested in that? I was like, oh, yes, please. <laughs> and he said, well, you know, come in for a voice test and writing test and everything. And I passed that. And he said, well, if you could do 10 minutes lost on a Saturday, phoning around all the clubs initially to ask for the very, very lower league non-league football scores yeah. and that's what I do and I, I got a, a manager or a player on every week and pray they answered the phone and and that was the start of it for 21 pounds a week and I absolutely loved it and I built up my little um not quite my empire West Yorkshire non-league football scene but then, I absolutely loved it and I spent every spare minute going to matches and that's still as vibrant isn't it that non-league sort of setup my grandson who I mentioned earlier is a supporter of Lewis FC so he's always going down there and he loves it. And they are a fantastic club. They only get about, I don't know, 500 supporters come a week, but they are fantastically loyal. They love the team. The team love them. I, I'm in a way cursed by being a Manchester United fan and have been all my <laughs> life. And I look enviously at it sometimes and think how lovely to be involved in that very local, very small group of very dedicated people. Oh, yeah. And you're right. Lewis FC is an amazing club. It's a pioneering yeah. club where they pay the women the same as the men. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Maggie Murphy, I'm not sure if you're aware of what she does there, but anybody look her up. She's done an incredible job. So, yeah, your grandson's chosen very, very well there. But I do agree <laughs> in terms of the the local club, whatever level that may be. And if you happen to be a Manchester United fan from another part of the world and another part of the country, as my husband is, well, absolutely mm -hmm. good luck to you. But if, like me, you happen to have a local club and you opted to support them through thick and thin, then when something phenomenal happens, it is extra, extra special. Um, and I'm not saying it's not if your team wins something every year and it, it's a big club and you're not local, that's your choice. And I'm sure you celebrate just the same, but there is definitely something about supporting a club that perhaps isn't massively successful and doesn't win that many matches. And Yeah, there's still a joy there when they do, or in fact, when they draw, that's good enough, you know. But how prescient of you to go to a magazine called Floodlight, <laughs> having spent so many nights of your life under those floodlights. Oh, yes. Good point, actually. I hadn't thought about that. Fantastic. OK, that's the third thing we put into the time capsule. So we move on to number four. Uh, now, this could either be the thing you'd like to get rid of from your life and we can finish with one of the things you'd like to keep or vice versa. It's up to you. OK, so I'll, I'll put the bad thing in next just because it works okay. that way. So the bad thing is the screw from my knee that the surgeon Ooh. did manage to take out. He didn't <sighs> manage to take out the other one. So now it's half out and half mm -hmm. in. It was just wedged. So I've got this kind of big bump on my left knee where he couldn't, I'm just feeling it now. And it's really gross. I've got such a horrible <laughs> scar all down my knee where I had to have a knee reconstruction because when I injured it, my kneecap dislocated. And that's, oh, what, my word. that's what started this whole career change really was because yeah. I, yeah, I didn't like the job, et cetera. But that kneecap coming out and meaning that I couldn't play football. And I still, to this day, sadly, can't even play really with my children because I'm so worried yeah. about it coming out again. So I had several operations, but the big one was the reconstruction because when the kneecap came out, I lost all the cartilage on the underside and ripped all the ligaments and never really did proper rehab. But I'd say the bad thing was the screw, but equally, and I teach my kids now to turn every negative into a positive wherever possible. Anything negative that happens to them is either a life lesson that will really help them another time, maybe lots mm -hmm. of times, 
or something positive will come out of it in a way you just hadn't expected at the time. So for me, it was the most painful thing I could possibly have done, along with, I'd say, burst eardrum and burning my hand on boiling milk as a child. They were kind of on a par. But yeah, yeah, this was awful. And I was on crutches for 10 months as a result of the various operations. Oh, my word. But that's everything you loved. Yeah. You loved playing football. You loved watching football. Suddenly you couldn't travel and you couldn't play. Yeah. And this was taken away from you. I did still travel with the London Wolves from Euston on my crutches right. with my Pilates, but it made it very hard. It made it very yeah, hard. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But even now, I mean, I was at Pilates earlier and I, I went yesterday because I've missed out on so much exercise since I've been abroad for the last pretty much few months with work. I do a lot of work in America now. Yeah. Mm. And just not being able to do lots of twisty, turny things. But I turned that into a positive because A, it was a sliding doors moment, literally sliding kneecap moment in my career. But had I not... <laughs> dislocated my kneecap that day I quite possibly may not have changed career may not have had the impetus wouldn't have changed jobs to the one that was really awful no and may not have gone oh I just need to do something I'm passionate about I don't know yeah um, you don't know and it may well have got to the point it's one of those things in a sliding doors moment like you said it was a well-paid job you might have been offered another position somewhere else and suddenly you find there you are you're dealing with copyright issues for the rest of your life. Well, that's it. And I think it's quite easy to slip into a job that you didn't mean to get into because a lot of us went to school, got A-levels, went to university and did a degree. And again, come back to not having to pay the fees. It made it easier in those days. But mm-hmm. but even so, whether you paid for it or not, if you come out with a, a German degree, a history degree, all sorts of degrees are great to have, but what on earth do you do next? And I think it's really hard. Yes, it's easier now with the internet, which we didn't have when I was a kid, but it's not actually that easy to know what you want to do for a living. And a lot of people listening to this will be thinking, well, yeah, my child's in that boat and they don't know and they're 15 or they're 18 or they're 22. And and it's Mm. really, really hard. And I think the answer really is to research, 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 and get in front of people, phone people up, email them, ask them if you can come and have a cup of tea with them, if you can spend a day with them, if you can shadow them. Not even necessarily work experience because people kind of fob people off quite easily going, oh, we have three places a year. And mm. But I think wherever possible to try to not ignore your passion, but to try to make something of what makes you different to everybody else. And for me, it was that football knowledge and words. I loved language. And for somebody else, it might be maths, but they don't want to be a mathematician, but there's something that really plays to their strengths. So I think wherever possible, if people can try to do the research and think about what would make them happy, because if not, you're going to be stuck in a job for a very, very long time doing something that you really don't care about and dreaming of evenings and dreaming about weekends. And and that's fine Mm. if it works for you, but it's lovely if you can do something that you're suited to. Yes. Some people are able to deal with, I do this because it pays me a lot of money and, and then I, I defer everything else. That's fine. And also, you're very lucky if you end up doing something that comes from a passion, because then it's not really work, is it? Like you say, you have to stop yourself doing research because you're fascinated by it. You're still fascinated by it. Oh, it's really weird because I don't really have lots of spare time with obviously having two children and there's mm. always prep. There's always prep. And whenever I think oh, I'm not going to do prep now. I'm going to put the kids to bed. And then I've got about half an hour of TV. I'll still end up watching football. 
<laughs> but I won't switch off at all. And I've, it's taken me forever to get through succession because that's the one thing that I tried <laughs> to get myself to watch to switch off from football. But I haven't seen Match of the Day from last week yet. I've watched this week's, but I haven't seen Ref Watch and I adore Ref Watch with a passion on a Monday yeah. morning on Sky Sports News. And I just, yeah. And then I'll spend far too much time on Twitter looking at articles mm. about football, but then that's my own stupid fault, isn't it? If I don't switch off and then I'll dream about football all night. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, if you love it, that's great. It's a wonderful thing. So the screw that the doctor took out of your knee, this is the bad thing. This is something you'd like to forget, even though, as you say, it opened up all that for you. Yeah, I mean, it's the bad thing because at the time it was really painful. It was mm. it was negative at the time. I lost all the muscle on my left thigh, which I haven't quite managed to get back because I didn't do the rehab. But I, I, again, I'd rather turn that into a positive. So it is the bad thing. Injuries in football or any sport. And also, mm. of course, if you're not professional and you don't have a rehab department and you don't have a physio looking after you and you don't have private health care, it could yeah. really impact your life if you're incapacitated and can't get around and can't see clients and what have you. But um, mm. so, yeah, so I have turned it massively into a positive. But again, that's just something that I try to teach my kids and whilst I can't run now, I literally can't even run for a bus. It's too painful. Mm. I think about what I can do and I can walk for goodness sake and I can do yeah. Pilates and that's great. So yeah. I'm much luckier than other people who have far worse problems. Yeah. Well, screw the screw. Screw it. That's going in there. <laughs> yeah, screw it. It's in the time capsule. So we've got one more positive thing, one that you'd like to keep. Yeah. So something I'd like to keep is the Charlton Athletic Press Room. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all know that. So, we, you know, you don't have to tell us much about it. No, what is it? What's so lovely about it? Oh, it's not so much that it's lovely, but it was a wonderful memory of my very good friend, Anna Kessel, who I admire beyond belief, who now works for Sky Sports in a very grown-up job. And I have no idea what she does there now because it's all very top secret, so we don't talk about it. But, <laughs> right. but what I do know her from is her sports journalism days. And until mm. recently, she was the first ever women's sport editor of The Telegraph. Right. And when I met her in the Charlton Press box, as in we were both watching on the gantry up there, I'd never met her before, we introduced ourselves to each other. Little did I know then that Anna was going to be this just phenomenal force for good. And in those days, so this was in 2006, when there would be a female in the press box, usually no more than one, there'd mm -hmm. be a female in the press room before and after a game. Um, there'd be a female in the tunnel there would hardly be any females in dressing rooms, physios, et cetera. There may mm. be a female in the director's box, but not very often. So what I'm saying is we were all pretty much on our own and we're all plowing a lone furrow. And we all felt like we were pushing an elephant up the stairs to be taken seriously in our jobs. <laughs> and certainly when it came to commentary for me, it was a very isolating experience. And I mean, I've spoken about that before, about mm. how hard that was and much as I love doing it, and I always have for the right reasons, I, I did find the pressure and the scrutiny extremely difficult, especially when I, yeah, I sure. did TV for the first time. Radio seemed to be fine. Yeah. but So that was really, really hard, but I just kept going because I was doing it for the right reasons. Why should I give up just because lots of people wanted me to? <laughs> because they didn't trust a woman to talk to them about football. But I just thought, well, if I just stop, then I'm just giving into that. Yeah, they they sort of, they end up being right 
and you go, they're not right. No, they weren't right. And they were perfectly no. entitled to not like my voice. Goodness, that's not a problem. That's absolutely their prerogative. Uh, have they heard John Motson? <laughs> <laughs> but I think a lot of it did come from preconceptions and not trusting women. Yeah. And I know that because I feel that because I grew up only trusting men to tell me about football. I didn't right. trust a woman because I didn't know a woman who knew about football. So I think a lot of the prejudice, if I'm being kind, is understandable. But I think my point here is that we all had this in our different lines of work. So Anna, in her role of writing for The Guardian at the time. So mm. when I met her, she had this idea, along with a colleague who was then at the BBC called Shelley Alexander, of setting up women in football, which would be a network of women who could come together, who could share experiences and help each other, basically. Right. That was it. Yeah. And so they tried to get something off the ground. And the reason I put in the Charlton press room rather than the press box where you have your cup of tea mm. before the game and the manager does the press conferences afterwards was that Anna and Shelley had tried to start up women in football with the help of the Football Association who told them at the time, well, actually, women won't feel comfortable or we don't feel comfortable getting a load of women together. So if you can make it more a women in sport thing, that would be better. So people don't look at us and go, hey, we're women who work in football. And it was a bit odd at the time. They have since, of course, become a lot more supportive, very, very supportive. But at the time, mm. this is how it was. People were really uncomfortable having women coming together and supporting each other. So <laughs> that was the precursor to WIF, as we call it, was that press room meeting and I'd met Anna in the press box upstairs. And that was the start of it. And then in a room above a pub in Soho in 2007, just after I'd done my first commentary on Match of the Day, which had been crazy, crazy front page news, subject of every phone in and you know, quite nasty comments about how I shouldn't be allowed to do it and all the rest of it, which was pretty tough at the time. Mm. They set up women in football to kind of help women like me and for people like me to try to help other women. And it was just a really special organisation and it still is. And I became one of the founding board members and it was mostly media orientated just because we were the women that we knew doing it. But then it's it's branched out to directors and all sorts of different people. Um, and mm. people would come together and, and sit there and share experiences. And it was all very basic. We didn't really have much of a plan. I tended to host <laughs> these events. But then it became a lot more organized. And now there are training courses to empower women in leadership to become more senior and to learn the skills to become more senior at football clubs and in different mm. avenues of football and to have more of a voice. And that's something that I'm really passionate about, that I think that women absolutely deserve to be in football quite clearly. And actually, football clubs and, and other areas are governed better when we have more diversity of thought, more diversity of experience, and not just, mm. as we may have seen in the Spain women's situation in the summer, oh, a cabal word, of yes. men patting each other on the back, giving each other jobs. And it's not an anti-men thing. In a million years, it's never been anti-men. We welcome male members and male allies, mm. but we have had to come from a place of being completely disregarded of being completely disrespected and building our way up and building each other's way up and trying to network and help each other with the help of yeah. men um, so that football is a, a space for all of much more diversity of thought. Yes, against the men who, who see it as their exclusive right. 
you know, which there are men there. I mean, clearly, as you say, that ridiculous situation with the Spanish team is a prime example. Well, they knew exactly what they'd done, but they were all Mm. backing each other and supporting each other. That was the problem. The system was wrong. It wasn't one bad apple in this guy, Luis Rubiales. It wasn't just the kiss that he'd forced upon this striker, Jenny Hermoso. It was the backdrop of what had been going on at that organisation for so long. And the fact that he tried to coerce her into signing a statement saying that she'd said, oh, yes, please do kiss me. I mean, it was utter, (laughs) utter nonsense. And it was deep rooted. And they'd complained about it the year before. And nobody listened. They were told to get back in their box, those 15 Mm. women. 12 of them didn't go to the World Cup in protest. And they still won it. So... I'm afraid we have a long way to go, Mike, but uh, I think we're getting there. We do, but how brilliant to be there at the beginning of something like that, that maybe, maybe in old age you'll look back and people say, why why did they start this? (laughs) And you'll go, "Uh let me tell you a story. (laughs) And it will be something that people won't even consider because it won't be necessary. (laughs) We can all dream. Oh, we can all dream. It's been shown that actually if things are diverse, if there are lots of voices, things work better. Yeah. And also if we just communicate better and if we just respect mm. people more. I mean, I'm not being a giant square here, but it shouldn't be that difficult, should it? No. If we could just communicate. So if something's wrong, we just look somebody in the eye and tell them, actually, I think, you know, we could be doing it this way or how about we were to do it this way or this is how I feel when you do that rather than yeah, yeah. mouthing off. And when people have a platform on social media, how about using it as a force for good and not just lashing out into the ether and slagging people off? I don't think it should really be that difficult. And if we're in a position to help other people, use our platform to do so. Yeah. And in any other society, in any other organisation, if somebody had grabbed a female employee and was their boss and had forced them to kiss them on the lips, they would have had instant dismissal. Yeah, and I'm afraid this was just the tip of the iceberg. This was not just about our moment, but at least we all know about it now, Hal. Yeah, we do. So, Jackie, how lovely to talk to you. I'm honoured that you've come on this podcast. It's a joy to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. The uh, pleasure's all been mine. Thanks so much for having me. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my lovely guest, Jackie Oatley, probably the most fluent speaker I've ever had on My Time Capsule. What a pro. If you enjoyed our chat, then do subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already done so. And before you leave us, do rate or review the show so others will be tempted to have a listen. That's how we make a living. We also really appreciate the Acast Plus listeners who, for a small monthly fee, get this podcast ad-free. And they get a bonus episode, My Time Capsule The Debrief. Details in the description of this episode. Do follow me and My Time Capsule on social media. At the moment, I'm afraid my comments are mostly just a frustration rant of the injustices of the world and politics. But I do sometimes calm down and post something amusing or interesting, so I'm worth following. Anyway, it's also the best way to get in touch with me and John on my time capsule, and we're always happy to hear from and communicate with listeners. The theme tune by Pass the Peas Music is available on Spotify. That's really John as well, of course. This cast-off production was produced by the aforementioned John Fenton Stevens. Thank you for supporting us. And, of course, sticking with us. I very much appreciate it. And, in fact, I am astonished. Who would have thought such a thing could happen at my age? Very nearly a pensioner, you know. Which I know may well annoy younger listeners who may never reach that age. But swings and roundabouts, whatever they are. The memory isn't what it was, of course. But uh, that means I can organise my own Easter egg hunt. 
Yeah, look, I know, but the jokes are free, okay? Still, you get what you pay for. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.